I think out of everything. She was worried about me. Do you know what I mean? Like, that was her last thought, like... Davina McCall. She's a TV presenter, a fitness fanatic. Multiple time best-selling author. Rarely off our televisions, and what you see is what you get. It's good to be back. After Big Brother, I thought, what else can I do to get famous? So I was always a bit of a show-off. Mum, you made a mistake. Look how great I am. That's at the back of everything. Why? I did coke with my mum at 15. I did it with my sister at 14. You were doing drugs? Yeah, like, all drugs were my problem. I left my job, no money, nothing. I will literally do anything to stop feeling like this. I'm going to phone someone for help. I'm fucked. Ten years ago, you lost Caroline, your half-sister. It was definitely the worst thing that ever happened to me. I was just trying to be really strong for her. And I kept saying to her, I'm going to be fine. She put a fence around her and I thought, I'm fucking climbing over the fence and I'm going to get in. Don't wait for somebody to say that you've got six weeks to live because the best seven weeks of my life with my sister were those last seven weeks of hers. Davina, what was your first defining moment? Oh. Um, definitely uh, realising, the moment I realised my mum wasn't coming back to pick me up. So I got taken to my granny's, my paternal grandmother, most amazing woman called Pippi. Got taken to her house in the country, which I knew really well. I used to spend quite a lot of time down there with her. And my mum wasn't with my dad. She was with another man, but I didn't kind of question that. I, they'd split up, but I didn't, I didn't know that or kind of understand. I don't think in my head I realised what was going on. And um, she said, I'm going on, on holiday and, you know, I'll be, I'll be back. And I was like, okay, great. And I stayed with my granny. And then after a couple of months, I thought, is she coming back? But then I thought, I didn't want to... It, this was such a different time. You know, I'm 55, so this would have been over 50 years ago. It was such a different time that you didn't ask people. Children didn't go, where's mummy gone? Or when's mummy coming back? I knew that I was a guest at my granny's house, but I wasn't. It had all been planned. My granny had been given my custody. My dad was coming down every weekend to, to be with me. Um, they were sort of sharing custody, but my dad was trying to make money in London and my granny was taking care of me day to day. And it had all been sorted. But I didn't know that because they just thought, well, she's young. She won't really remember or realise. Let's all just brush it under the carpet. And it's so interesting because nowadays with my children... Everything that happens, we're like, how do you feel about that? Are you okay? Let's talk it through, blah, blah, blah. Just didn't happen back in those days. So I grew up thinking that my mum had left me um, and had never come back. So at about probably four, maybe six months after, after she'd gone, I realised that I wasn't going to live with her again, but I was left feeling guilty because I felt like my granny was looking after me. 
And she didn't want me in some way. Not that she didn't. She was so loving to me. But somehow I was overstaying my welcome. So I think that was a defining moment because it set up a chain of events, a fear of abandonment that kind of made me make some really stupid decisions mm. all through my teenage years into my 20s um, and and something that I've worked diligently on since my early 20s to let go of. Why did your mother do that? Well, my mum grew up in France with two parents who were very loving but didn't know how to um, give her their time. So I think my mum needed time and contact, but they just gave her a lot of money. They were they were quite wealthy and they just, you know, at 18, they gave her a lump sum of money. She went and spent the whole lot on clothes and Yves Saint Laurent. She got a food disorder. She was very thin. It was the 60s. She was like a model. She had a Faye Dunaway nose job. She she was incredible looking, lots of drugs, quite a lot of drink, like crazy fun lady met my dad my dad was super hot like young guy they were an it couple he was so in love with her she was completely out of probably a sex addict when i when i look back at her life and unashamedly so the french are very she's french french are very different about sex she was kind of you know she was it's only bodies that was her catchphrase like you know oh it's only bodies. And you'd think, no, that's someone's husband. Like, that is, you know what I mean? So looking back, she she wasn't well herself, but she was so young. Like, this was, we're talking 22, 23 when she met my dad. She'd already had a child at 16, been forced to marry the father of that child. They'd got divorced. Then she met my dad. So she was troubled herself, right? And my dad tried to help fix her, but it just wasn't going to work. And she ran off with someone else. Um, having had several affairs and everything. And my dad was brokenhearted, absolutely brokenhearted. And the courts in the UK, because I was born in the UK and had been brought up here, gave my granny and my dad custody, which was so rare. Mm. So um, I'm not sure how hard she fought. I'm not sure that she did, but um, that was what happened. But I did go and see her in the holidays, but that was... What do you mean? Well, quite crazy. Like, what did you see? I, oh my God, like, what didn't I see? I mean, my mum would, she would wear, this was quite a funny story. I mean, and some of it makes me laugh now, but it would be, she'd go out with me, like in a floor length electric blue coat, and we'd get out, and then she'd go like that to someone, and I'd think, she'd flash oh my them. God, she's naked. Yes. Like, she'd be naked underneath her coat, and she'd flash someone, she'd think it was hilarious. And I'd just be like, oh, oh, God, somebody, please, like, make the world disappear. But at times, it's really hard to explain, but I loved my mother. Like, I really wanted her to pull some mummy business out of the bag. Like, I was like, come on, you can do this. And sometimes she'd give me a hug and I'd think, oh, my God, this is it. Like, this is what it feels like to be hugged by mother. But then at other times... You'd be reading her, right? It'd be like, well, I've got to be, I've got to be a sweet little girl. Oh no, I'm going to have to take care of you. Or like now I have to be really good fun. I've got, I need to entertain you. It was always wearing a thousand different hats 
to see how she was going. And, and my granny used to say to me when we did start talking about it when I was older, she said we'd have to like kind of, it would be funny for a month when you came back from France. You'd be a little bit on edge and we'd have to just really get you back into your favourite foods, a routine at bedtime, safety, reground me. So when I say I'm half nun, half wild child, it's because of that life that I've had, like drugs at 12 with my mum. Like You were doing drugs with Yeah, you? like smoking weed at 12, coke at 15, 14 with even. With your mum? I did cope with my mum at 15. I did it with my sister at 14. You know, it was like, it was, there was no, and then I'd get back to the UK and it would it would be back into your secondhand clothes and s- sort of safe, small life, like simple. My life was very simple. I mean, I say secondhand clothes just to give you an idea. I was in my granddad's jumper and an old pair of jeans and I get to Paris and they go, what are you wearing? Here's loads of money. Go and buy some posh loafers and get your hair done and and I'm 12 like I look like a proper Lolita but I and I'd quickly realized that my life in Paris and my life in in the UK they must never know about each other <laughs> because if if they knew in the UK about my life in Paris they wouldn't let me see my mum and I didn't care how mad she was I still wanted to see her does that make sense yeah so my my sister also was my lifeline in Paris. So my sister, who was six years older than me, even though we did do drugs together, and I know that sounds bad, but she was my rock. Like she was my, she grounded me when I was in Paris. So we stuck together. We understood what mum was like. We worked her together. Caroline. Yeah, Caroline, yeah. yeah. And then my mum, you know, but I, I did like going to Paris and also because I was young and they didn't stop me from doing anything. It was crazy. Having sat here with um, stand-up comedians, I remember Jimmy Carr said to me, he said, often it's assumed that comedians themselves are depressed and that they're cracking jokes to kind of cheer other people up in an attempt to cheer themselves up. But he said to me, you should actually ask them which one of their parents is depressed, which one of their parents were they trying to please and entertain. You said earlier, you know, did I have to be this one day? Did I have to be a joker? Did I have to take care of her? Was your personality shaped by that, that desire to sort of keep her in good spirits or win over her her affection? I think it taught me some amazing skills in reading people. So um, also my granny was unbelievably good at this as well. So people used to think my granny was psychic because somebody would walk in the room and she'd go, are you okay? Hmm. And they'd walk in smiling, but there would be a an eyebrow raise or a flicker of an yeah. eye or something. And she'd go, you're all right. And they'd go, Oh God, she's your granny psychic. Like she can read me, yeah. she can see straight through me. I feel like being with my mother, she could walk. I could hear by the way she walked what person she was going to be when she walked through the door. I could hear the steps coming, and I'd think, I know how to behave the minute she walks through that door. So that's an amazing gift, and that's how I choose to see everything that's happened to me. I am absolutely not a victim sure some of it's been hard and it's like you said i'm happy we were talking just before we started i'm happy and yes life throws me curveballs but i choose to learn from those and still be happy rather than cling on to the curveball and let it pull me down but i often wonder whether it's it was the hardship that made me when you know small wins or little wins in my life were massive oh uh, yeah you know a hug from my mum 
that felt a little bit like a parental hug rather than a needy mm. or an angry or uh, I, that would be a huge like I'd done out on that for a month I'd be like oh, but yeah but I got a hug two weeks ago that was epic you know so I think you hold on to these little things but I don't know some kids might not they might not see or feel that thing because they don't have that in them I wonder whether we are born with it it's such an interesting concept positivity can you make yourself positive if you aren't that have you ever spoken to the speakmans i remember mm. going on this morning the speakmans are a couple nick and eva they're on this morning as kind of psychology mm. experts they kind of they're like they help you train yourself out of patterns of behavior those guys said something that if you are a negative person at the end of you know Oh, it's raining and it's rained for the third day in a row. You finish your negative sentence with, but luckily. Mm. And you have to say, but luckily, and then think of something, but luckily. Mm. But luckily, it was so dry in the summer, it does mean that the reservoirs will be full. And you finish every negative thought with a positive. And they said it takes about two to three weeks to naturally start thinking, but you know, that's probably not a bad thing. But it's just remembering to do that is so hard. When you were when you were like sixteen, seventeen, you you know, you said you'd started doing drugs with your mother in in France. But what did you want to be when you were older? If I'd asked you at I thought, sixteen, I probably probably need to clarify actually that me and my mum only did drugs twice. Okay, I mean I know that's twice times too many yeah. in my book, but I don't want to give this impression that she and I were taking tons of drugs together because that would be a false impression. Okay, I just needed to plug yeah, put that put that there. Right? Yeah, but. Um, what did I want to be when I was 16? Yeah, I was quite nihilistic, I think, in a way. I, I wasn't thinking about anything except for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and where was I going to go and what club could I go to and how could I go out and what? how could I party? And that was beginning. I moved to London when I was nearly 14. And when I moved to London, suddenly the safety of the country had disappeared and I started finding ways to go out and take drugs and find people that took drugs in London. I was living with my dad and my stepmom and they were very kind of solid, straight people, but my life did slightly change then. So I wasn't really thinking about anything at that point. It really, the time when I started forming an idea and I was basically just a show-off would have been 18. I was basically just a show-off. Yeah. Because... Um, I think because I had this fear of abandonment, if I was, if I did, look at me, look at me, enough, look at me, I'm here, everybody, don't leave me, ah, needy, people pleaser, everybody like me, like that, that's, that's who I was. And actually what drugs did for me at that time was they made me feel safe. They made me feel like I was being hugged in that maternal way that they filled this hole that I had here. And then as soon as the drug started running out, the hole would fill up, sort of, the hole would be there again. And I think, oh my God, where's the nearest thing I can get? You know, um, man, laughter, attention, drug, like help fill the hole. So I was always a bit of a kind of, you know, bit of a show off. And at 18, you drop out of university? Never went, Never went. nearly okay. went to university. Okay. Um, didn't go to university. And this is always something that I want to say to 
to kids, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was an absolute car crash, I would say, until I was 23, 24. So when I was 19, I, um, I'd left school. I went to Australia for a few months. I came back and I thought, I'm going to save up money. I'm going to get, you know, go working. I'm going to save up some money. I'm going to try and get enough money to go back to Australia and live there. I loved it out there. I was clean. I wasn't taking any drugs. I was just driving to the beat. I mean, it was such a different me. And I liked that me. That was the nun. Like, my nun was freed in Australia. And I thought, I quite like this person. I like who I am. And then a girlfriend of mine said, I'm going to Saint Tropez for two weeks. Do you want to come? And I was like, yeah, but I haven't got much money because I had all my savings and stuff and I didn't want to delve into that. She had quite a lot of money and bless her, she came on the coach with me from Victoria down to Saint Tropez and her parents had a house there. And then I started dipping into the savings. And then in two weeks, I'd spunked £800 that I'd saved up for my flight to go back to Australia. (laughs) And I never went back. And that was a kind of, you know, that was the wild child me dancing on tables in Le Cave du Roi in Saint-Tropez till God knows what time in the morning, hitching a lift off people in Ferraris, trying to get back to, I mean, awful, danger, danger, danger everywhere. How I'm still alive, I've got no idea. Um, but hilarious, you know, it was just part of my path. But that meant that I never went Perhaps. back to Australia. And I, I got a job as a waitress. I was a really, really good waitress. I loved waitressing. Did you ever do that? Well, my mum had a restaurant when I was super young, so I did did it a little bit. But I was so young that it was I was more just mm. of a gimmick, you know. He'll get loads of tips because he's eleven. Yeah. Um, but not 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 properly. No. I learned a lot. I bet you did. Um, I, I learned a ton from working in that restaurant. Yeah, about people and customer service and stuff. And then I worked in like, you know, there was a shop called Republic, like retail a lot. I worked a lot. In, I did that yeah. as well. What did you learn? Um, well, just people. people I skills, mean, yeah. people skills and what people want and that the customer is the most important person you said people Love. pleaser yeah I mean that's my natural that was my natural habitat so I'd, I'd go and I'd like make people feel amazing while they're having their meal and make sure that they had the best service ever and it felt like a win to me you know at the end of the night I thought I've done a really good job I've made loads of people really happy and that made me feel good about myself so it was a great job for me when did you first realize that you wanted to do something in media tv um or was it more chance? Yeah, no, so that, that's quite a good story. So I was working, I got a job at Models 1 after the, after the, and it was by chance, it was complete fluke. I got a job at Models 1 working on Stephen, the male models section at Models 1. Hmm. I was a booker for the male models. I mean, I'm telling you, 19 or 20-year-old me walking in there, I was like, this is the best job ever all these gorgeous men walking out, fell in love every 30 seconds for the first week. Um, And then what was interesting, it just became, they just became normal. (laughs) I was like, oh, there's another good looking guy, whatever. Um, Desensitized. Yeah, it's fun. It's so funny though, how quickly that happens. But I'm still friends with loads of them now. Again, it was a great time in my life. Slightly car crash, lots of drugs, lots of kind of madness, but also a very kind of good time in time in terms of work and having fun so I was at this agency loads of beautiful models everywhere I get approached by this guy who knows I love music and he said do you want to run a club with me at Subterranea and I said yeah great and he said bring all the beautiful people so these club nights caught the attention of somebody at MTV who was going to launch MTV Europe 
and they needed to, for the launch of MTV Europe in Amsterdam, get loads of celebrities from the UK to Amsterdam, but do it in a really cool MTV way. Mm-hmm. So me and this girl called Sarah Blonstein and um, a guy called Graham, we were in charge of entertaining the celebrities from Victoria train station to Amsterdam and back. And it was like Duran Duran, <laughs> um, Zodiac Mind Warp. I mean, it was really, really fun. And I dressed up as a cleaning lady, lipstick on my teeth, curlers in my hair, a tea urn full of champagne, and it was riotous. And at the end of that night, when we were heading back um, from Amsterdam on the plane, I thought to myself, I am going to work at MTV. That is the best place. Those are the best people. And while I was there that night, and this is what... This is another defining moment. That night when I'd gone, I said to someone, can I get your number? Because I'd love to kind of look at job prospects at MTV. Would it be all right? And he said, yeah, sure. I had the number and I thought, I'm going to call this guy. And then I called him and I said, you know, would it be all right? Can I um, to sort of send you a showreel if I did a showreel? Because I'd like to be a presenter on I didn't even know the word VJ then on MTV and he was like yeah sure sure and I started making showreels and I must have sent him like three a year and relentlessly called him until he said please stop calling me after a couple of years he said could you just like I can't give you a job at the moment we only want European presenters and I said can you give me someone else's number and I'll call them instead. And he went, yeah, you can take Mike Kaufman's number. So I took Mike Kaufman's number. And eventually, a year later, Mike Kaufman said, there's a vacancy. So I'm 24. I've just got clean. I'm, I'm six months clean and sober. I'm absolutely radioactive. I can't believe I'm sober. I still can't believe I'm waking up with dry sheets. That my pillow, you know, we're talking about small wins. My sheets were dry in the morning. And I'd know when I woke up and I saw daylight and I think, I know this is morning. This is amazing. That's such a win. Sheets are dry. Yeah, sweating. I used to sweat in bed, withdrawing at night and my sheets were dry. Is this, what what drug causes that? So heroin. So I I was um, in the end um, addicted to heroin for maybe the last three months of my using but the nun took over I think at that point and was like you are addicted now you have to stop what what was that moment that where and what was can you really zoom in on that moment of you reach a point and you go this has to change Mm. so my best friend had said she was going to take me to Santana she didn't use or drink really she'd had a brain injury when she was younger and she couldn't for 10 years so she didn't and she got me into her car and I was like, I'm so excited about going to see Santana. I was probably... What's Santana? Um, it's a band. Ah. Stephen Bartlett. I know, sorry. I, Go uh, and do some yeah, revision. Okay. I'm so Santana. Okay, we'll can I just say something? You're going to really like them. Santana, I'm going to like them. Really? Okay. Um, and I got in the car and she shut the doors and she said, I'm actually not going to take you to Santana. I need to tell you some things. I was like, Yeah. And she said, I know that you've been lying to me. Weirdly, I'd been off heroin for a month at that point because I'd been away. I'd done a geographical. I'd gone away looking after someone's uh, nannying for someone for two weeks and got clean. And then I'd I'd 
I'd also been with my mum in Morocco, so I'd had no heroin for a month, but I had just come off the back of a 24-hour cocaine bender, which had made me realise that heroin wasn't my problem. All drugs were my problem. If I if I wasn't taking heroin, I couldn't take cocaine normally either. I, I couldn't just take it for four hours and then go to bed. I had to take it for 24 hours. I was an animal. I thought, oh, my God, I'm I'm not just addicted to heroin. Heroin's not a problem. It's all drugs. I've got to stop. She gets me in the car and she goes, I know you've been lying to me. We all know you've been lying to us, all your friends. And you are the topic of conversation at every dinner party I go to. And this shame starts piling on. And I I started feeling a bit, well, fuck you to her. And this is, this is virtually my only friend I've got left. And I do say, well, fuck you. Like, fuck you. I didn't really know what to say because I couldn't really argue with what she was saying. And I said, yeah, well, I didn't want to go and see something really childish. Like I didn't want to go and see Santana anyway. Get out of the car. I'm trying to get out of the car. She slightly shut the doors. It's all eggy, awkward. Slam the door, walk away from her, immediately burst into tears and think I'm not going to turn back around and let her see I'm crying, you know. Get inside, go straight to bed. My parents, you know, I was um, sleeping on a camp bed in my in a, my dad's sort of wardrobe. I'd move out of my boyfriend's home. His fault that I was using, I'd got worse. I'd left my job. I thought that was the thing that was making me use. I'd got worse. I had a car, but no money to put petrol in the car. I had not a, nothing. I was on this camp bed and I would sort of walk into the like my room, which wasn't really a room, it was a cupboard, sit on the bed, go to sleep. And then an hour later, I wake up and I think, I'm going to phone someone for help. <laughs> I'm fucked. I, c- I can't do this anymore. I phoned this woman who I knew was clean. And it was as if she'd been expecting my call. She goes, oh, hi, Davina. And I was like, I was just wondering if you're going to a meeting um, tomorrow. She's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going at six o'clock, you know, world's end. Come and meet me there. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just interested to see what, you know, what it's like. She says, yeah, great. Come along if you want. She didn't ask me what's going on. She didn't ask, which was exactly right. And the next morning I woke up and I felt so full of shame. And I thought, I'll go and see Sarah. So I went to see Sarah at work at lunchtime. I sobbed. I said, I'm not expecting you to believe me. And I know I'm going to have to prove myself. But I just wanted to let you know I want to change and I want to do something about it. And I'm going to go to a meeting tonight. And I could see a slight sort of, are you really? Like, is this really going to happen? I just thought, I, I don't know how much more I can give you, tell you, but I really, really mean it. So I went to a meeting that night, just spent the next two weeks going to meetings every day. Well, and for 90 days after, sobbing, just sobbing in every meeting of surrender. I don't care what I have to do. I will literally do anything to stop feeling like this. And NA taught me how to live and how to change and how to heal myself. I I owe NA my life, literally. But it also gave me my career. And weirdly, having tried to get a job at MTV while I was using all those years, the the time they say, come in for an interview, we're going to finally screen test you after three years of trying. I was six months clean and I didn't mess it up. 
you know, I turned up on time. In fact, I turned up a bit early. That was new for me. Um, I turned up clean and smelling like flowers and with a smile on my face and colour in my cheeks. That was new for me. You said NA taught you how to heal. What did you learn about healing? And what did you learn about why you were addicted to narcotics? Mm. Well, I learned about fear of abandonment. I probably hadn't heard that as a phrase then. I didn't understand. From listening to other people talk about their experiences, sometimes I'd think, oh, no, that wasn't quite my experience. I don't think that's why I used. And then I remember hearing someone and thinking, that's exactly me, that whole and it never fills up and you're constantly trying to fill it with anything. And then when they said, here is where I'm learning to fill it myself. And I thought, that's what I want. I want to line the hole with something impermeable. That means it will fill up and never empty again. And there are steps in Narcotics Anonymous and any 12 step program. And, you know, if you work through these steps and it is like, People would go, oh, it's like a cult, you know, it's really bad. But I did replace my addiction with addiction to <laughs> Narcotics Anonymous, but I know which addiction I'd rather have. Like, I went all the time, often twice a day, because it was the only place where I felt completely normal. I'd be around other people going, yeah, I felt like that. Oh, yeah, I did that. Oh, God, I messed up this. Or, oh, yeah, I had, um, you know, liaisons with people that I didn't, I didn't care about, I didn't know, but I thought it would fix me. You'd think, God, these people are so honest. It's, I've, I realise the power in honesty. I mean, that's your thing, right? Speak your truth. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. Freeing oneself, isn't it? Mm. So I, I, learned, I learned everything to help me. I did have like another transformational moment uh, when I got hypnotized um, for a job that I was doing about eight years ago. And that was like, that was when the impermeable seal went on my fear of abandonment. And it was unexpected because I wasn't going to the hypnotist about that. I was going to the hypnotist about not feeling anxious going in a submarine to a thousand meters under the sea tiny three-person submarine where you can't stand up and there's no loo and it takes 40 minutes to get to the surface again. Mm. And I thought, I don't get claustrophobia, but I don't want to find out at a thousand metres under the sea that I am cla indeed claustrophobic. <laughs> so I thought I'd better go and get hypnotised just to make sure. And that was, have you ever done hypnotism? No. Oh, no. man. I mean, if you've got an issue that is something that you've worked on a lot and is hard to let go of. I mean, I didn't even think really that my fear of abandonment issue was still there, but I do think, I do think it was. And we did some regression work where I went back to me in the kitchen, looking at my granny, thinking my mum's not gonna come back and I don't know what to do and I feel a bit guilty. I think I've overstayed my welcome. And the hypnotist said, go get, go get that Davina take her by the hand he said where's your favorite place in the garden I said the oak tree so he said take her to the oak tree so I took her over to the oak tree little me four years old and he said okay sit her down 
and sat her down. And he said, you know, comfort. I said, she looks worried. And he said, comfort her. I said, I feel silly. I don't know what to do. It's me. I, it feels weird. And he said, imagine she was one of your own children. Comfort her as if she was your child. So I put, I put my arm around her. And I thought, okay, this is easier. And then her head went on my, on my chest and I was stroking her hair. I said, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I kept thinking he's looking to me to say something profound and I've got no idea how to do this. And he said, well, why don't you tell her it's all going to be okay? And I really started crying, like really crying. Why? And he said the same thing, it was up. And I said, well, it's not going to be okay. I take drugs. I make stupid decisions. I put myself in danger. It's bad. And he went, but look at you now. And it was like, oh, my God. Look at me now. I'm great. And it was like everything went, you know, all the cogs and the wheels and my brain all went click. I am going to be okay. And I looked at her and I got like her head in my hands and I was like, you are going to be okay. Your life is going to be amazing and it will be full of you know, ups and downs, but you are going to be okay. And he said, you can take her back. Let's take her back. So I went back to the kitchen and I put her down in the seat and she's smiling at me. And then he says, we can leave now. But he said, before, before we leave, I want you to just turn around and look at her one last time and tell me what she looks like. I said, she looks happy. And he said, great. And then he brought me around. I was like bawling. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like, this is amazing. What's happened? What's just happened? Mm -hmm. And he said, we've planted a seed. And he said, let's just wait and see what happens there. He said... This, this was basically to stop you feeling like you're going to be abandoned at the bottom of the sea. But actually, I think maybe we've done something bigger here. It might be kind of amazing what happens. And a couple of things happened after that, that where I said, actually, it's not okay uh, to treat me like that. I would never have said that before because I was worried you'd abandon me. If I, I, if I stood up to you and said, mm, not okay, I'd think, oh, you might not like me anymore. I, I, it was very important that everybody liked me. And suddenly I was like, actually, I can stand up for myself in a non-aggressive way and not actually mind if you like me or not because I'm doing it for me. Oh, my God, it was mega. And I feel like from that moment I've been a different person in all of my decisions, in my outlook on life, it's been mega. So your, your career then in TV, one of the things I read is that it was heavily fueled. and we kind of talked about this before we started recording, by your desire to be famous. Yes. I mean, the, the first MTV thing, so I, I'd wanted to be a singer, another desire to be famous. I wasn't good enough. I was like, I would be an amazing backing vocalist. I, my, my nickname at home is The Harmonizer. I can't <laughs> listen to a track without harmonizing to it. I absolutely have to. That's annoying at some point, though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, because all my kids are like, oh, my God. In in the car, I'm always like, hmm, 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, like they're going, oh, my God, like, stop. If I could have turned my family into the Von Trapps and I really tried, like that, or made them all do choir, they all had to kind of do singing lessons, they just weren't buying it at all. And I'm so upset about that. But if I could have had the Von Trapps, that would have been my dream. Anyway, failed singer. What else can I do to get famous? All of this, obviously, mum, look at me. You made a mistake. Look how great I am. That's at the back of everything, right? And I mean, for example, when I was 15 or 16 and I I did quite well in my O-levels. They were O-levels back then. That's how how old I am. And um, I called up my mum to tell her I'd done quite well in my O-levels. She was really angry (laughs) because she felt like I was just trying to show her up or that, you know, don't think that you're... She was drunk. She was drunk. She took it badly. She was like, felt that it was me trying to say that she wasn't good enough or that she'd done something, you know. And I was so confused by that um, that I thought, I'm going to show you, like, I'm going to make you want to. Anyway, my aim was I want to get my own show on MTV. That's what I want. And I got my own show on MTV and I presented the first show and I went up to the dressing room afterwards and I cried and I cried and I cried and I couldn't figure out why I was crying. And I called my sponsor, which is something you you have in Narcotics Anonymous, who's there to help you decipher yourself. And she said, right, you know, we picked it apart and picked it apart. And I said, it hasn't fixed the hole. It, it, It didn't make me think oh my mum's gonna want me back and then to top it all off my mum did call me and say she'd seen it because you could see it in France because it was European and she said what you know you think you should stop pulling the faces you pull these faces and I was like that was not the desired effect I did not want you to think that I wanted you to think wow you're amazing you know and um so it was it was a really heavy moment. And then I thought, wow, I need to warn everybody. You know, being famous, you've got to do it for the right reasons. I did it for the wrong reasons. And now I'm here and I've got this job and I'm on the wheel and I don't know how to, you know, I can't get off. I didn't want to get off. I mean, I, I was enjoying my job. Don't get me wrong, working at MTV were some of the greatest years of my life. My life but... Actually, it was probably his lives. I've had li- lived about 10 different lives in my lifetime. And MTV was one of them. But I think that that realisation that the thing that I'd been aiming for, that I thought was going to fix me and it didn't, was like, again, the end of something and the start of another phase of my life. Okay, well, you're going to have to find it inside somehow. And that that hole mm. you, you referred to, is that hole f- f- filled now? Filled. Yeah. I mean, I've... 100% filled. I've never been so happy. Like, I can't even... I I sat... Do you know, it was really funny because I said, I said to my boyfriend this morning, I said, I'm going to do this thing with Stephen Bartlett this morning. And he was like, oh my God. I said, I am not going to cry. I'm like, I haven't done Piers Morgan specifically for this reason because I was like, I am not going to sit and do... But it's weird because it's the thing, It's talk, I could talk about my pain till the cows come home and not feel a thing because it's so far removed from me and it was a long time ago and I've processed and processed and processed it. 
but feeling happy like is so alien like a hundred percent like joyous sitting on the train and just feeling so good this morning and it's not like um euphoria or a druggy happy or a fake high it's content oh my god it's like i can't i cannot quite believe it and i and i don't you know i've been walking forwards but i don't know how i got here just walked forwards you know but settling settling down um i feel like i've i've grounded in a way that i've never had before mm. and you know i think it's so important to talk about this stuff because at 55 if you'd have said to 30 year old me what's life going to look like when you're 55 I'm going to say really sad. I probably won't be doing TV anymore. It won't want me. And I'll be really boring. And I won't be having fun anymore. And so, and I think, oh my God, I couldn't be wrong, more wrong. Like, I've got to go and tell everybody quick. Tell everyone it's going to be okay. Stephen, it's going to be okay. <laughs> I've never had someone say to me that, their feelings of happiness make them emotional. Oh, and when I think about it, well, because I'm grateful. And I think because, you know, we were talking about what makes you a positive person. I think it's because you think it, it's been a roller coaster, right? It's for you. It's been a roller coaster. But like, it's not about the Lambo or the house or the mansion. It's about this. And your roller coaster. And your journey to money and making it and then realising it doesn't fix you and then you fixing yourself by being on a journey of self-discovery, which you massively are by talking to all these different people. You're like taking little bits from everything that somebody says to you and thinking, I'm going to use this for me. That was a great tool. Thank you very much. I'm going to have that. It's like you are healing yourself. This is your NA meeting. This is this is your this is your recovery. I feel like you just blown my cover. Yeah, this is your recovery. And how amazing is that? It's crazy, it's crazy privileged. Uh, yeah, um, but in you know, and it's just gonna. These are all seeds that are planted in you that just continue to grow. So life gets better. You know, Mother Nature throws you crepey knees, and crepey elbows, and crow's feet, but also throws you a full heart and a peaceful mind your career your mm. your your career in tv that whole journey it's been one of the most incredible careers that i think most people could ever hope for in any industry ever you know you the top of your your game um i first came to learn about you because of big brother but there's a career before that and there's a long long career after that when you reflect on what advice you would have given yourself or like why you made it to the very top of that that pyramid, what is the answer, Davina? I mean, this is another thing that I marvel at every day because I've been many times in my career where I've thought, this is it. It was interesting. After Big Brother finished, um, I contacted a friend of mine who was like a tech a tech, a techie person. 
And I'd had this thought, like after Big Brother, I thought, who am I? And where am I going to go? And it could all end. And as the person that was providing the roof and the food on the table, it was on, like me, I had to think of my next step. What was I going to do? I'm not sure how long television's going to last. I mean, it's still going, which is amazing for me. But I thought I need to get into technology and the internet and I need to go online. And I came up with an idea for... I thought about it in terms of an exhibition centre, but you could put that online where you would have everything from money, advice, personal advice, mental advice, um, kids' advice. And I went and talked to a few people about it and for whatever reason it didn't happen. But it wasn't meant to happen. I tried to get it off the ground for like two or three years. I tried to make it a TV programme. I tried to make it an exhibition. I tried to make it an online thing. And you know when you're swimming against the tide with an idea and at some point you've just got to take your hands off the steering wheel and go like that wasn't meant to happen but then I got offered Long Lost Family now Long Lost Family I've been filming that program now for 13 years it makes me feel so good that show Mm. (laughs) and I've helped so many people on it which has been so wonderful to be part of that moment in their life where they learn something that's been a niche that they couldn't scratch for years and years and we can provide that scratch um, so I always think, well, just start walking in that direction and something else will come along, but never just sit down and wait. You know, I've never sat down and thought, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to stay here and, and wait for something to happen to me. I've got no em- embarrassment or shame about emailing a TV company or a head of a TV company and going, have you thought about this? What about this? Can I present that if it happens? Can I do this? I've, I'm literally begging ITV to let me present Midlife Love Island. I could fill a villa in Love Island with middle-aged people with the best backstories you have ever heard in your life. They've lived a life. They're widows. They're people who have been through horrific divorces. They are people who have split up with somebody and decided they want to try going out with somebody the same sex as them. They're like interesting people. I'd watch that show. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I was like, I need to present it, please. What are they saying about they that? They said, oh, we're looking at something else that's quite similar. We might consider you for that. Well, if I hadn't sent them that email in the first place, they wouldn't have thought about me for the other show, maybe. You've got to make opportunities happen. They never just come to you. Keep walking. I'm always talking to my kids, just keep walking. Something will come. Kind of form build the foundations and just keep walking and as you're walking you're laying more and more path don't sit and wait for the path to be laid because it'll never come to you there's this word manifestation you've used mm. um in this conversation what role and what does that mean to you you know you're talking there about proactively like attacking the day mm. i i almost liken it to um the analogy i've given before is when you get in your car in the morning you set the sat nav which is the manifestation but then you've got to drive mm. if you just do one if you just drive you're going to get lost if you just set the sat-nav, you're going to be in your garage all day. You have to do both together. You've talked about how you attack, like send the email, make the phone call, pass to the person at MTV. But then what role does like the manifestation play in all of that? It's interesting because you said you've got, it's all very well putting it in. The sat-nav is the manifestation, but then you've got to drive the car. Yeah. But in, in, in my mind, I see that if you start, if you know where you're going, 
your car self-drives. Like you, you almost are always walking in the direction because you can see it. I know that at some point I will do this. Interesting. So I've sent this email to this woman um, and I've just told you about it because this, this was a manifestation. It's triggered my memory that I've told this. I'm going to send a follow-up email today. Now, is that is, is my car self-driving? It kind of is, like, because I've been telling you about a manifestation because I had it in the first place. You've just reminded me. I'm going to send the email. That, for me, is the difference, though, because there's so many people, and we all know them, that have sofa ideas. Mm. They'll turn to you while they're watching it. Yeah, I've got this idea for this TV show. Da, da, Sometimes da. they're really good, right? Fantastic. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because they don't have the, the next bit, mm. which is, I'm going to get up and send an email. Mm. And like you've just said, I'm going to send another one. That for me is turning the key in the, in the ignition. Mm. Yes, maybe, you yeah. Know, some, there's a lot of people that are going, oh, I'm sat now for Tom Tom. Oh, this is where I, I want to go someday. And then they just relax back into the, the chair in the car and nothing happens. Mm. And then there's some people I meet, tends to be the people that sit here with me, that took that weird kind of um, nothing to lose first step and you go, that was rude. Or you go, oh, really? You just like showed up there? Or you just begged them on email? And those are the people that I tend to sit here with. So Anita Roddick started The Body Shop and she lit kind of my, um, lit the wick of kind of, interest in lit the fuse I mean of, of my interest in activism and she was saying um you know if you don't think that you have the power as one person then you've never been to bed with a mosquito <laughs> she said be as annoying as a mosquito and I was like I think that's me I am as annoying as a mosquito and that when I meet somebody and I bet you're the same Stephen when you see a kid and a kid comes up to you and goes, Stephen, can I have your number? Because I've got an idea and I want to come and pitch it to you. You would go, yes, mm. absolutely. Whereas other people might think, oh, I can't do that because he's Stephen Bartlett or I have mm. to email him or, oh no, I've seen him on the telly. I can't approach him. But when you meet a ballsy kid yeah, yeah, and yeah, they yeah, go, yeah. can I come and shadow you for a day or um, uh, give me a number I want to, you think, yeah, sure. Because I always respect the, the tenacity and the asking. I see myself in it a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. I remember I was doing this podcast one day and um, I was I was recording with a guest and then I got up to walk out and the, the person they brought with them in their entourage was their niece. And she goes to me, hi, Stephen. I know this is, I know you're leaving and I know you've just interviewed my auntie, but I have a podcast I've just started and I would like you to be on it. So can we record it now? Did you say yes? I was like, of course. <laughs> I was like, let's sit down. And we sat down and recorded for like 45 minutes for her podcast. Stop it. Her podcast is killing it. Sh Shivani, isn't it? She and she's killing it now. Like when I say killing it, she's actually killing it. She's like killing it now. But I, I remember doing a post on LinkedIn about that moment, tagged her in it and said, I just respect the ask, you know, because my life has been riddled with moments as I saw in yours where I just sent the email. I had nothing to lose. Well, I was sucking stealing pizzas on my own in, in Manchester. What did I have to lose at that point by just sending loads of emails? I remember Samsung, I think it was Panasonic or Samsung, gave me free cameras. I sent an email. They were like, here's all the free cameras to start your business. When I was 14, I sent uh, these emails to this vending machine company. They fit our secondary school with free vending machines that we made profit from. So I, I'd learned the power of just like asking. Nothing to lose. Maybe my ego might take an L, but he gives a fuck. I've got nothing to and do. And what's the worst that could happen? But nothing. I think also when the worst has happened. Yeah, you're not scared of it. It's happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, getting a no to me is just a yes that hasn't happened yet. I'm always like, oh, 
You're yeah. saying no, but you mean maybe. You mean maybe. Like, <laughs> like, you mean ask again. <laughs> I say you are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. Here with Professor Galloway, Scott Galloway. And yeah. he told me about the arc of happiness where he says, you know, his idea was that our happiness kind of looks like a bit like a smile where kind of start happy at the start of our life. We get, it gets a little bit difficult in the middle. And then at the end, the kind of 50-ish um, age, when we go into that second spring, it's it's happy again, typically. Again, this is not the same for everybody. It's kind of a generalization. But at the bottom of the arc of happiness, when things are most difficult, is when we start losing people in our lives that we love. And I know 10 years ago, you lost Caroline, your half-sister. Um Talk to me about that, that experience, and also generally the process of how you've dealt with that grief. Mm. It was definitely the worst thing that ever happened to me, still to this day, like the worst. So I told you a little bit about Caroline uh, uh, with my mum and that she, she was six years older than me and she lived in Paris. She was the result of my mum's pregnancy when she was 16 and she endured a lot well, our lifetime with m our mum and that was very hard on her and she was left with many hang-ups from that of um, she was, she she used to find it hard to be completely honest all the time so she'd tell big exaggerations about things or make up stories but this is because she'd had to lie to cover for my mum her entire life. Not all the time but just she'd make her life a bit more exciting by telling untruths and I I don't want to do her a disservice in her death because we talked about this when she was alive and I go is that a porky and she'd start laughing she'd go well it did happen but this didn't happen you know but it was to try and I understood her and she understood me and all my defects of character and she knew exactly why I did things and she was an insular person, quite an insular person. And her favorite thing would be to go. She lived with me always. We had six dark years when we didn't live together. But she lived with me when I had a two bed flat in Hammersmith. And we were very funny together. Like I just understood everything about her. And she understood all my idiosyncrasies. And I got all of hers. And so... Her favourite thing in the evening, you know, I love socialising. I'm a people person. I like going out. I am touch. She would be TV dinner, food on lap, foie gras, a tonne of butter, French bread, glass of red wine, spliff. If I would say to her, do you want to come for a walk around the garden? She was French, fully French, so her mum and her dad were French. And 
I'd say, do you want to come for a walk around the garden? She'd go, no. You know, exercise, not her thing. Absolutely hilarious person. So funny. But very secretive. And I was bleh. I would tell her everything. She would tell me nothing. It was very annoying. Um, I would walk around naked in front of her all the time. I'd go, come, I'd phone her up. I'd go, Caroline, come, come and talk to me while I have a bath. I mean, I was so annoying. I was an annoying little sister right up until the very end. So she'd come over to the house and she'd sit on the floor and I'd go, like, talk to me. Tell me everything that's happened at work, blah, blah, blah. And then I'd share something or I'd talk about a problem and she'd help me iron it out. She was amazing, so good to talk to, so kind of wise, always a bit painfully honest with me. Yeah, but you know you're overstepping the mark or you know you shouldn't be doing this. She was the only person that could do that with me. But because she was so secretive, things were going a bit awry. So she just had her 50th birthday and she sort of walked into a door once. A door was half open and she kind of walked into it. I was like, didn't you see that? I thought she's been smoking too much spliff, you know. Um, and then she was sitting at the table and she was talking to me and she had a glass in her right, uh, her left hand, it was her left hand. She had a glass in her left hand and as she was talking to me, I was watching the glass. Her left hand was tipping further and further over to the side and I was watching the glass and the water was just about, and I went, Caroline, your hand, and she went, oh, but she had to look at it to tip it back up and I was thinking, that's very weird. And she became a bit clumsy and I thought, too much weed or menopause or something. She became a bit forgetful. She kept going, oh, menopause, I can't remember what's going on. She had a sore back and she'd fallen over. We'd been in the garden and she'd fallen over. And she kept going, you know, when I fell over, my back's like still not right. She used to cane the Advil. I mean, she was terrible with like painkillers. She used to take sleeping pills. You know, she'd slightly medicate herself, weed, sleeping pills, Advil, like all the time. I just thought she's on another planet. But it got to the point where I thought something is up and I'd invited her to come to France with us for half term. She always came on holiday with us and she said no, which was very unlike her. And I was like, are you sure? She went, I just want to stay here. I'm so tired. I don't feel, just feel like I've got flu coming on. I was like, okay. I got back. She'd had flu all week. She'd been in bed all week. I was like, whoa, Caroline, like, I think maybe you should go see someone. She said, no, I think I'm coming out of it. Then the next morning... Someone had been walking past her window and they said, um, Davina, I think you should come. I can hear Caroline shouting for help. So I got the key, opened the door. She'd been on the floor all night. Um, she was in her pyjamas. She'd soiled herself. She couldn't move. She was paralysed down half her body. And I was like, it's a stroke. Quick, call the ambulance. The quicker we can get her seen, the better. The rat car comes, the, you know, stroke expert. He walks in, he goes... I don't think this is a stroke. I was like, but it must be a stroke because half her body's gone. Like, this is what happens in a stroke. They get her in an ambulance. I'm now a bit worried. I'm thinking, if this isn't a stroke, what is going on? But I was just trying to be strong for her. I just go, it's going to be fine. We're going to get you to hospital and they're going to get it sorted. It's probably, you know, a bit of menopause, a bit of whatever. Maybe you're smoking too much. We get her to the hospital test after test after test and I was thinking brain scan I understand and then they said we'd like to do a chest x-ray and I was thinking why are you doing a chest x-ray if it's clearly neurological 
Off she goes for the chest x-ray. And then about an hour later, we get a doctor come in and he goes, we've got something to tell you. And we're both thinking, yeah, we're in A&E, right? And he goes, yeah, you have primary lung cancer in both lungs and you have two brain tumours. It's metastasized to your brain and the pain in your back is where your lung cancer is then going into your bone. So you probably have bone cancer as well. I was like, that can't be right. And she went, lung cancer. And then she looked at me and she went, it's all my fault. I went, it's not your fault. Like, it's not your fault you've got lung cancer. And you could see her just going tick, 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 smoking all those years, smoking the smoking the weed. And I was like, stop, stop. We need to think, like, what are we going to do? Like, okay. What are we going to do? In the meantime, I have to, I just said, I'm just going to go and call um, my mum and dad. I'm just going to go and call them and just let them know what's happening. And I called them. I, got, I couldn't breathe. I was like in the corridor going, I think I'm, I think I'm, I think I'm going to have like some kind of attack. Like I can't, I can't process it. I don't understand what's happening that I think they're telling me, because they hadn't said the word die, I think they're telling me Caroline's dying, like she's got so much cancer that she's dying. I said, I'll, I'll keep you posted. I go freshen up my face. I, there was a nurse there that I've seen a couple of times since when I've taken my kids into A&E, and I always give her a bit of a special hug because she came up to me in the corridor and she was like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm not okay. She's like... What's going on? And I said, well, my sister's got this and this. And she was like, I'm really sorry. She just gave me a hug and that was it. And then she went, but I've never forgotten it. You know, that hug, I needed touch. I needed someone to, I went back in, kind of tried to dry off my eyes or what have you. And we just sat there in silence really. And then lots of people came in and were looking at her. One of the saddest things was someone lifted up the, her back to put the stethoscope on the on her back and listen to her. And I saw, a, I know this is going to sound so weird, but I saw a black head on her back and it was massive and it had grown into kind of a, a sore. It looked horrible. And I thought, no one sees you. No one, no one sees you naked. No one, you don't let anyone in. Like I am the closest and even I am not in because you are so protective of that painful child. She'd never done the work. She'd never got to NA or AA. She wasn't really an addict. I mean, you know, she smoked a lot of weed, but I didn't, I didn't see her as an addict. She wasn't an alcoholic. She wasn't. But she, she had, she'd put a fence around her. I mean, everybody was at the fence and she had so many friends that loved her so much, but nobody got inside the fence. And I, it made me so so sad and I thought I'm fucking climbing over the fence and I'm gonna get in for however long you've got left because you are not shutting me out we had the best talks she was in hospital for a month we had the most amazing brilliant talks that I thought god why is it that when you're dying we get to do this <laughs> Why did we not do this a year ago? Like if anybody's listening and they feel like they've got a relative that they want to get into or get, 
do it now. Don't wait for someone to die. Because the best seven weeks of my life with my sister were those last seven weeks of hers. And so she had a month in the hospital and then we, I said, I want to get her home to her cottage. I had to go around and find all her weed and it was everywhere. I literally could have, uh, you know, started dealing. She had that much weed squirreled away. I think she'd forgotten half of the places that she'd had it squirreled away. I chucked it all away Um I wasn't, I didn't find that hard at all. Like I wasn't, I was never interested in weed. So it was easy for me. I um, set up her house, got the plumber in, put in things for her to hold. Um, occupational therapy came and told me all the places where I need to put stuff, harnesses, hospital beds, blah, blah, blah. Set up her whole cottage, got her back home and just hung out with her. And we got a carer and she she had chemo booked in, but the first chemo was booked in for two days after she died. And we thought she had six months. We wrote a bucket list. And on the bucket list was um, just the sweetest stuff, like go to France one more time and um, see the kids. We tried to make as much of it happen, get loads of her friends down. A lot of the stuff we couldn't do. Again, like why do people do bucket lists when they're dying? Like, do bucket list when you're alive. And also, I would challenge anybody listening to this podcast because this was a real thing for me. If somebody said to me, Davina, you have got six months to live. What's like the most important thing to you now? Like what, what really matters? Don't wait for somebody to say that you've got six weeks to live. Say, I, I love, I say I love you to all of my friends, all of the people that I love, non-stop, check in with people, call people, make sure they're okay, spend time with people, make the decisions where you think, if I was to die tomorrow, is this the decision that I'd be happy with? Equally, if you've got somebody very toxic in your life and they are really ruining your life, you know, if you had six months to live, you would be, the first thing I'd do is let go of this toxic person. Do not wait. You know, do it now. And you deserve to be happy. You deserve to not have this toxic person in your life. And Caroline, again, I guess, you know, I'm always looking for lessons. She taught me so much in her death. She was so brave. She never once complained. She never once got frightened. She never cried. And she tried to look after me. And one of my most, I'm sorry, Stephen, I know I'm talking a lot, but there was one moment I do want to tell you about. So, Obviously, no one had ever seen her naked. And she had this amazing carer called Claire. Oh, my God. She was the best ever. She was the most gentle. She understood respect and dignity. And she knew Caroline almost straight away. She knew what kind of person she was. And Caroline would not let me get her undressed or ready for bed. It was like, I don't want you to see me naked. And the night that she went to sleep for the final time and then three days later she died, she was doing this kind of knitting thing with her hands. She was really uncomfortable. You could see there was something, something had changed a bit. And I was like, hey, you okay? And Claire didn't come until maybe seven or eight in the evening to, to put her to bed with the district nurse. And, um, and she said, I, I want to go to bed now. 
Oh, no, Claire was there, but she needed somebody else to put her to bed because there was hoists and everything. And I said, well, look, Claire and I could do it, but it would mean that it would be me. And she went, okay, but laughing. And I was like, are you serious? And she went, yes. And I went, oh, my God, Caroline, thank you. Thank you. But at the same time, I was like, well, you know, I'm going to cry. Like, this is the, this is Mecca. I've arrived, you know. This is my pilgrimage to my sister. I've, I crawled over the fence and I'm now at her body. And I said to her, would it be all right if I did the diprobase? Because I needed to diprobase her before she got into bed so she didn't get bed sores. And that's like moisturizing every inch of her body. And she went, yes, but you're not going to do it again. Like, this is the only time. I'm going to let you do it once. And I said, oh, thank you so much. And I got to, she had the softest skin. I'm very furry. My, my sister had no hair, like at all. She was bald as a coot. And her arms and stuff were so soft. I got the dip press and I was like, oh, my God, Caroline, your arms are so soft. And she was laughing away. She's going, oh, my God, you are ridiculous. I was going, this is amazing. <laughs> and I got to cream her whole body. And it felt like she'd given that to me. And it was hideous for her. And even when she was dying, she gave me a bit. of herself that I had never had before. And it was so nice. And she went to sleep that night. And actually in the middle of the night then they came and they gave her a bit more morphine. They said, okay, she was really distressed. She was calling me mummy and holding onto my hand. She'd never been like that before. And she, they gave her some morphine and it calmed her down a bit and then for three days she just slept basically but I was with her when she went and it was really lovely and I kept talking to her the whole time because they say your hearing is the last thing that goes and I just wanted her to know I wasn't crying I was just trying to be really strong for her and I kept saying to her I'm gonna be fine because I think out of everything she was worried about me. Do you know what I mean? Like, that was her last thought. Like, are you going to be all right? Because she knew how much of a backbone she was for me. That's what I meant about it being a reciprocal agreement. Like, it wasn't just me taking care of her. She was taking care of me. And she. it was a reciprocal agreement. And she wanted to make sure that I was going to be all right. And I kept going, I'm going to be fine. And I talked out all the time, but in the last five years, so I had a huge grieving thing seven years after she died. I went like all summer. She died on the 1st of August and all summer I couldn't shake off this cloud. And as somebody online, interestingly, had said often seven years after someone's died, it's like a bang. And I was like, this is what's happening to me. Seven years, it's like so painful again. <laughs> But since then, you know, and me being in a good place, I keep telling her, I keep going, oh, man, like, I wish, I wish you were here, like, so I could show you how great it is. She'd be 
living with me now and, you know, she'd be so happy. We'd be good. I imagine myself, I always thought that I'd be wheeling her around. I always imagined she'd probably get emphysema and she'd have an oxygen tank. And um, I'd tell her that. I'd go, if you carry on doing that, you're going to get blooming. And I said, but I'm happy to wheel you around. I am. I'll, we'll go and live by the seaside somewhere and you and me can be a couple of old grannies and I'll, you know, I'll take care of you. But I didn't, never thought she'd die at 50. But she was a great person. And, um, but her, her p- passing, my dad, you know, when he died, he had Alzheimer's and I, it was expected. We knew it was coming. We'd spent 10 years preparing for it. It was still horrific, but he was 78. And I knew he'd lived an amazing life, but I still felt my sister had so much more to give, you know. What is that process of grief like? Uh, You know, I ask these questions because I've been fortunate enough to not go through that arc of grief Mm. yet. And I think about it. It's been like, I think it haunts me a little bit in my head sometimes. Um, That process of grief, what you learned from it, what you would, um, what Mm. you might impart on me. Do you ever feel like an island in your life? Like that your family all around you, but you're not quite attached. Like you are slightly on your own. A hundred percent. I always felt like that too. So I'm sort of attached, but not quite attached. And other people are attached, but I've never... And it's not a bad thing. It's not because anybody's tried to detach me. I just feel like an island. Maybe you didn't... In my case, I feel like I didn't learn attachment. I didn't Mm. learn how to... to, You know, I call my parents by their first names and I... Do you? Yeah, I don't... You know, I feel like we're in a family of islands. That's called an archipelago. Is that what it's called? Yeah. A group of islands all grouped together. Oh, really? It's an archipelago. too much. So I, I don't... So t- your partner, I know you don't talk about mm. personal life, but is it like two islands have come together? So you've formed a, like a little... It's interesting. Like I said She's... to Michael, like Michael's Ibiza mm. and I'm Formentera. Oh, you <laughs> I'm the like the really kind of gorgeous, like hot, beautiful, unsport island next and he's quite a party island. And we've formed like, we've now formed Ibiza and Formentera, but we are two islands that have come together. But I, I, I feel like... As, as just to talk about the grief thing, I've my mum died, mm. my dad's died, my sister's died. I have an amazing stepmum who I love very much. She's still with me. Um, but I have a half-sister out in Australia who I love very much, but I d- don't speak to um, as often because of the time differences and everything. Um, and so now I really, I feel like, and Alan, I've got very close family and stuff. It's not that I'm not close to my family, but I do feel, but I've got all my kids are on my island. They're with me. They're in me. Mm. They're part of my DNA. Um, but it's just an interesting concept, that feeling. Alone. But when you meet somebody and you really get on with them, you can form a little bond, but you're still two islands. Mm, but there's a bridge. But there's a bridge. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> My, funnily enough, my girlfriend is the opposite, mm. which is funny because I sat here with um, a relationship matchmaking expert and he talked about these three different types of attachment that we have. One of them is like um, evasive. I think that's what he said, where you're kind of trying to av- avoid the prospect of connection. You self-sabotage. You're always trying to kind of run away from commitment. The middle one was nervous, 
where you're always very nervous about attachment and that makes you needy. And then the third one he said was, I'm going to paraphrase, basically a stable. We all know those people. All of their parents are together still. They have, you know, that their parents seem to be best friends and work together. They they end up being like best friends with their partner. They seem to have no problems. <laughs> and he says, it's a, it's a risk when two aversives get together. It's also a risk when an, an aversive and a nervous get together because you have someone who, in my case, is trying to run. You have a girlfriend who wants attention and quality time and I'm trying to run and she's trying to... He said, you have to both together get to becoming a stable together. And I thought that was... Interesting, because mm. she has helped me to become stable. I don't run away, emotionally open, affectionate. Mm. But we managed to get there together. Mm. And maybe that's the bridge. Maybe when you feel, you know. Does any of that resonate with you? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think I've prob- I'm in a stable, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Were you always? Were you always a stable attachment type in relationships? No, because I had the fear of abandonment. Yeah. But then this... This I feel like this hypnotist kind of transformed me to be able to form healthy friendships, um, changed my whole outlook, I think, on relationships. You wrote a book it's here in front of me called mm. Menopausing. Mm. Why? Why did you why did you want to write a book on it? Writing mm. books is a lot of effort. Mm. Yeah. You know, so you have to really want want it. And you're mm. you're now in a very in- intentional phase of your life. So this must have really, from everything I've learned about you so far, must have really mattered. Totally. I mean, I think I did um I did two documentaries which were eye openers for me. Uh the first one was a huge risk and I thought, Oh, am I literally committing professional Harry Kiri here is is my entire career going to implode now that I am banging the menopause drum and telling everybody that I'm menopausal because I'd hidden it for so long I thought is this going to be a bad thing or a good thing I had no idea but my life was heading to in this direction where I'd been talking to doctors and learning things and I thought I've got a platform and I don't understand when it's something that happens to every single woman. It's not even like it happens to some women. It happens to every single woman and some trans men. And we know nothing about it. This is a crime to, to womanhood. And it is also not good for society. Because women are behaving in a bizarre and irrational and over-emotional way sometimes. 75% of women have symptoms, 25% of women don't. That those 75% are going to be behaving or going through things that either will affect their jobs, their work, certainly will affect their relationships, certainly will affect their children's lives if they've got kids. And yet we don't know anything about it, neither did you or you or anybody else know anything about what was going on. And I thought, I've, I have got a platform and most of the people that follow me on this platform are women. I, I've, got to, I've got to do something about it. So I did this first documentary and I kind of watched it at home like that, like, oh my God, is this is going to, oh my God. <laughs> and then I went out for a dog walk the next day. It's always on the dog walk. Stopped three times. Really? Yeah, it's always on the dog walk. It always ha- goes off and when I walk the dog, it's like amazing. No, and I got stopped three times and I was like, oh, hi, yeah, hi. And they went, oh, my God, we watched it last night. I was like, oh, wow, did you? And then one person cried. Another was a guy that stopped me and said, oh, I watched it with my wife. And then we called my wife's sister because my wife's sister's definitely, you know, she's been like lost for so long and it's so good. And I thought, 
God, I think this is going to be great. I think this is going to really help people. This could be seriously good. But like page one of menopause questions, I still get asked, can I take HRT while I've still got periods? Yes, that is exactly when it's the best time to take HRT. Oh, my GP's told me I'm too young. No, 45 is a completely normal time. You're thinking, wow, I'm not reaching as many people as I thought I was. I've made these two programs Mm. and I've talked about it and I've shared about it and I've shared about it online and I've said you can watch it on all four and all of that. But I just thought there needs to be something where it can be on a table or in a loo Mm. or in a library or in an office space where people can go and reference and look something up and know that they are getting 100% correct facts because the doctor that I wrote this with is, unlike me, extremely fastidious about telling the truth and about getting correct scientifically validated information out there. So me and her make quite a good team because I'm all the kind of huge feelings and passion and anger and laughter and silliness and she's the science. What are the symptoms and what symptoms did you experience in your life? Because there'll be people listening to this now that are thinking, oh, they might have seen well, it they in might their parents. Someone. Yeah. You know, you know I, I thought about people that I know when I first started lo- learning about menopause from actually Gabby Logan, who said she actually, you played a huge role in, in her journey and her sort of figuring all of that stuff out. But what Gabby. are those symptoms to be looking for? Mm. And how much do they impact one's life and relationships? So the symptoms can be varied. They can, you can just get one symptom and it can absolutely floor you or you could get five symptoms and they don't massively bother you or you might not get any symptoms at all. So 25% of women go through it with absolutely like sail through, don't even know that it's happened until their periods have stopped. Then 50% of women struggle a bit. Like I would put myself in that 50%. I struggled quite a bit. And then 25% of women, it will be so bad that they will think extremely dark thoughts, often suicide, um, will feel complete hopelessness, have to leave their jobs, have to leave relationships or get left. Um, it, it has catastrophic effects on their life. So the, the symptoms, estrogen, depletion in estrogen affects every organ in your body. So forgetfulness, brain fog. I mean, that is Where chronic... Mm, yeah. Where the fuck are my keys? Where the fuck are my keys? Well done. <laughs> Chapter you. in the book. Thank Love you. that, Stephen. Thank Ch- you. Um, you know, the, the, the forgetfulness is epic um, and embarrassing. And it also another thing that makes you feel old overnight, your body starts changing. Um, a bit of extra weight around the middle because um, Professor Tim Spector now explained to me that women um, metabolize sugar differently. Uh, in midlife and estrogen and um, the way that that affects your digestive system and your gut changes in menopause. That's like fascinating. So many changes happen. And so I had night sweats. I had the mood things I had. um, But all of this, the, the, the brain fog was the thing that was really affecting my work. And I just thought, I'm not even sure that I can continue working. But I did end up through a long process, and it's all explained in the book, but end up seeing a private doctor. And I'm sad that I had to go to a private doctor, but I seriously thought I was going mad and somebody flagged up, maybe it is the perimenopause. But I said, I've been told by my GP, I'm too young. They said, well, maybe go and, you know, pay and go and see somebody. So I did. And they said immediately, you're perimenopausal. I've got hyperthyroidism. I've had that since I was 28, where my 
thyroid is underactive and apparently people who have hypothyroidism can start menopause early. I didn't know that. And they talked me through all the perceived risks and the benefits. I didn't know there were any benefits to taking HRT either. I thought it was only going to give me breast cancer. I thought it might take away my symptoms, which would be the only benefit. But actually, there are health benefits to taking it. And I weighed it all up and I thought, I'm definitely, definitely going to go on HRT. You can take it for the rest of your life. We get asked that a lot. You get asked, like, does it postpone your menopause? It doesn't postpone your menopause. But if you stop taking it, you wean yourself off. You can occasionally get an odd flush even after your periods have stopped. Um, it's just the estrogen depletion in your body if you keep taking the estrogen you probably won't have the hot flushes but some women have to stop because they do get um breast cancer that's estrogen receptive and then um they are required but i met somebody the other day who'd had breast cancer and um she'd gone on hrt because she felt the quality of her life was so bad that she had sat down and weighed up look if it comes back how are we going to deal with it what would I do? How many times do I get checked a year? And she weighed that up herself. But it's a very personal decision. Someone would be like, I don't want to take that risk. Mm. I don't want to take the risk of getting cancer just to make myself feel better. But for her, she felt so bad that it was worth the risk. So it's a very personal journey for so many women. But it is a journey that when you know about it and you know what's happening to you, is an easier journey to take. What about men? You talk about men in the book. Yeah, so they're like really important. I'm going to tell you a story about a guy the other day he sent me a tweet and he said, I got your book and I went to the living room door and I opened the living room door and I chucked in the book and I ran away. <laughs> and it made me laugh when I read it and I, and I thought, oh, you know, banter, hilarious. Oh, as he ran in there yeah, chucked yeah, at yeah. his wife. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, I'm terrified. And then I thought, actually, do you know what? I'm going to send you a direct message. So I messaged him because he was following me. So I messaged him privately. I said, are you okay? And he went, it's actually quite hard. Like, I don't know what to do. And I thought, oh, that was a bit of banter, but actually you're struggling, right? Yeah. So I was like, hey, listen, I've got a great tip. Leave the banter at the door of the living room. And why don't you go in? And you can pick up the book and sit down and read it with her. She'd absolutely love it. I can't tell you how much it would mean to her if you said, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to say or how to help you. And I'm feeling, tell her how you feel, um, but in a non-comedy way, like yeah. really tell her how you feel and then say, what can I do to help? Can I, can I read this book with you? Can we, you know, what can I do? Anyway, the next day he sent me another message and he went, oh my God, I did it. And it was so good. And we read a bit of the book together and I feel much better informed and I don't feel like it's me. Because I think he thought mm. it was him, you know, and being, it's hard to explain when you're being a bitch that it's not their fault, <laughs> but that everything that they do makes you want to like, run away or shout at them but it's not their fault how can that not feel like your fault yeah. when you've got somebody doing that to you and just knowing that it is a thing that happens and that there are things that you can do about it makes all the difference 
you know, to a man. So I think, and to the woman, you know, for a man to then go, oh, I see. It's like, oh, he gets it. Do you know what, though? There's, um, there's a fear I have about this because even in the case of him buying the book and then running in, I know it was a joke, running in there, throwing it in there and closing the door as if it's a grenade or something. There's a, there's a fear that, as a man that if I was to approach my partner with the book, it would be me saying... There's something wrong with you. Yeah. Mm. I mean... You see what I mean? That is why um, an honest and open conversation about how you're feeling, not like you've been a bit moody recently, I bought you this book... Just say, look, yeah. yeah, like say, if a man was listening to this and he thought that his partner was perimenopausal and they've maybe noticed three or four symptoms, buy the book, read it, or have a look at the symptoms. If you're worried about what they might think, hide it and read it. Look at the symptoms, do a little mental checklist. I think you've got this, this and this. And then go, look, I've been feeling like this recently. I've been feeling like you don't love me anymore. And I really miss you. Say something nice. Say something about how you feel like we've grown apart a bit and I want to bring it back. And I've been thinking and I listened to some stuff and I heard something on the radio or, you know, how did you hear about this book? So then you say, well, I was listening to the podcast, Star of a CEO. Like and I, and subscribe. And I, like and subscribe. <laughs> and so I thought I'd buy the book and have a look at it. And I think some of this is, can I show you something? Can we sit down? I'd really like to show it to you. And if they get annoyed, don't worry. They might get annoyed and walk away and go, I'm not perimenopausal. And then come back and secretly read the book. Or they might come back and go, I'm sorry. I I was annoyed, but I think I am. And then they might have a cry. I, it, it can work out a million different ways, but it just needs a bit of patience bit of understanding and no banter. Ba- banter is like bad in several situations. Banter is bad around periods. Do not do banter about periods. You can do banter about haircuts, clothing, uh, loads of things, but banter about periods, not funny. Banter in childbirth, not funny. Unless wife has given you permission to bant. Uh, or unless she bants at you, then you can bant back. And banter during menopause, unless she bants first. I always go by the woman because these are times of great vulnerability, and sometimes a, ban- a bit of banter can really hurt. We used the word mission earlier on. We used it in the context of once you decouple from the need for validation or to fill that hole, you can have a much more intrinsic internal mission to set your life. Um, in a new trajectory. What is your mission now? As you sit here, you said you're 55. Mm. Um, what is your mission? Mm. I, I really like helping people. So I think that's a general mission. If I can help in any way, like what can I do to help you? I think I've got a platform. You've got a platform. You're helping people. You know, that's like, I feel like that's your mission to spread, uh, spread good using your platform. I guess like I've, I've worked hard all my life to get a platform. Now I've got a platform. What am I going to do with it? Mm. Do I want to make more money or get more followers? Not really. I'm not really bothered. Do I want to help people? Yeah. So everything is like, is this going to help anyone? Is this going to do any good? Even something as kind of, you know, lingerie to me is a, 
is a superpower. Like lingerie is one of the most important builders of self-confidence. When I was single, I used to wear badass lingerie because the first act of self-love is what are you going to put on underneath your clothes that's next to your skin that no one else is going to see, that only you know what you're wearing. You know, I, I see women who look absolutely amazing on the outside, but they're wearing grey, holy underwear. And it's an ca- act of care. Self-care is looking, looking nice only for you. Hmm. It's an amazing act of love. So I want to help people feel good about themselves. I want to get the message out there. And I also... What do I want to do? Yes, I just think that is my mission. I'm always thinking about jobs like, because of my sister, I was thinking about a TV program I'd love to do called Legacy. Because my sister was a beautiful person and I never think she felt it. But my God, her funeral was amazing and she was loved so much. And I kept thinking, why aren't you here? Oh my God, you'd love this. You had no idea how much you were loved. How, what a huge impact you had on so many people's lives. I thought, wouldn't it be great to do a sort of this is your life type TV program where you bring all the people together, but for somebody that is life limited, somebody mm. who has a year left and you do their funeral before they die. Have a have a living wake for them. Wow. Yeah, it's like, it's horrific, but great at the same time. And if you found somebody that was willing, I would love that. Yeah, I was thinking about it from a TV, the TV's perspective, but wow, what a range of emotions. This is your legacy. Yeah. Look, yeah. all these people. Mm. And getting the roses while you can still smell them. Yeah. So that's kind of, that kind of thing, like I can do a job and and do something lovely. I mean, I'm not sure if I would find anybody to get that off the ground because it's it's quite extreme, but this is... You're manifesting this, these are, Yeah, I'm, I've said it out loud on here. Someone might hear it. You never know. You are, you're such a legend for so many reasons. You have a real talent, which uh, I didn't realise until I'd really met you here, ha- having, having watched you on TV, but there's just something really quite electric and, and wonderful <laughs> about you. But that's probably why you were so successful on on tv in the public domain because there's this electricity to you i don't know if anyone's ever told you that before it's real just like brilliant engaging electricity so um it's been an incredible honor to meet you i've learned so much i felt a full the full range of emotions your podcast is fantastic which you do with michael Mm -hmm. making the cut yeah can Um, i tell you something funny please on apple podcast they michael my partner is called michael douglas and um, they've got a picture of actual Michael Douglas really? with me. And I, I keep thinking Catherine Zeta-Jones is going to come over and like lump <laughs> me. Go, are you doing something with my husband? I go, no, they've got the wrong picture up there. I've written to Apple so many no, times. Haven't. I've gone, yeah, I have. No, you I keep writing to Apple Podcasts going, mate, please swap Michael Douglas's photo for my Michael Douglas. <laughs> I'm going to get into trouble with Catherine, okay? But it's a fantastic podcast. You Thank sit there you. with your partner. Yeah. And you talk about life. Recommend things. So we recommended, in fact, the specific episode, and we were Mm. recommending your podcast in general, but the specific one was the Jimmy Carr one, which was, he was a great, such an interesting... Mind-blowing. Right, mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. I think I DM'd you after. Yeah, you did. You did. If it was straight after that. No, it was after that. It was after you. You'd done a story about it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that. We all freaked out a little bit because you're such a legend. You're a national treasure. That we we're like, oh my God, Davina McCall is listening. We're like, we need to, we need to step this up. 
<laughs> it is though. Moments like that are super surreal for me because, you know, I've watched you on, on screens and I've admired you for so long. So to hear that you were listening, it's like, oh my God, what did we say? I, I, you know, so thank you for you that. You said good things. It's okay. And your book is amazing. We, we were talking you. before you, um, we started about how it, the way you've designed this book from the colours to the cover mm. to the, the, the structure of every page and how engaging and unintimidating it is and accessible it feels um, is also intentional. You've done it all yeah, for a reason. Yeah, I want it easy to read. I was just saying earlier about the the hands on the front. You know, I wanted those two hands at the bottom to look like I'm going to help you out mm. of this and we're going to do it together. And that the messaging is positive because I think people... Um, I had viewed the menopause as an incredibly negative thing um, mm. in my 30s and 40s. And actually, it's been a time where you're actually talking to me here and asking me how I feel. And I'm saying happy. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is what menopausing has done for me. I feel so happy. So I wanted to kind of convey that in some way and make it a book that when you are feeling diminished and invisible, that you can pick it up and it's easy to read and you will see yourself in every page. When I do this podcast, sometimes I have moments where I'm so grateful to get to do this because because I meet these amazing people. But then I learn about things that are like, like it's like I'm in a, a hall and I thought the room was fully illuminated. And then I have a conversation about menopause and then another light goes on that I didn't yeah. even know. You know, and it's like the room has just got bigger because someone has turned the light on for me. And learning about menopause over the last, from you, from this book, from over the last, from what Gabby said and what you'd said, you know, the influence you've had on Gabby. It's maybe, oh, fucking hell, so many things make sense now. Mm. I mean, well, mm. my mum had a medical hysterectomy at 28 and would have been plunged into the menopause and didn't get HRT. So um, imagine what impact that had on her and her behaviour and her actions. You know, I, I've I've forgiven my mum a little bit for some, I mean, not all of it, <laughs> but I've let go of it. Um, but I, it explains some of it. I actually did want to talk to you about that situation of forgiveness with your mother, because many people can relate to having someone in your life that you fight to change. You try your best and, you know, because they're your mum. And at some point, sometimes we have to say, listen, We've done more than we can possibly do to the point that we're actually hurting ourselves now. And we have to kind of cut ties is a bit of a drastic way of saying it, but we have to kind of start protecting ourselves. Did that happen in your situation at some point? So with my mum, she was an alcoholic. I then got into recovery and then came the thing of how long do I go along with my mum being an alcoholic without saying you're an alcoholic? And you need to do something about it because it's getting really bad. And after a few years of being in recovery, talking to my sponsor, going to meetings, sharing about it, I thought, I'm going to confront her about it. And I said, you're an alcoholic. You need to do something about it. And then she got really fucking angry with me and she didn't do anything about it. And I saw her another couple of times. She was um, stationed abroad with, uh, she'd married a, somebody that worked at a, an embassy. Hmm. She could move around. And eventually I just said, look, I can't, I can't see you until you get sober. And a couple of years later, she went to live in South Africa with her husband and she got sober. And I invited her to my wedding, to Matthew. And she came and she was sober and we went to an NA meeting together and we held hands and we shared. And then, uh, 
Matthew and I went on honeymoon and we went to uh, Paris afterwards. Saw my mum again. It's kind of like amazing. Like it, it was kind of as I had hoped it would always be. It was like a miracle. And then six months later on my birthday, on the 16th of October, just in case you want to send me a card next year. Um, on the 16th of October, I'm away in Edinburgh and the paper comes upstairs and it says, Mummy, I need a meeting on the front page of the mirror. And I'd never spoken about going to NA because it was an anonymous fellowship. And the point of being an anonymous fellowship is that nobody knows you go. And she had sold a story to the papers about us going to that meeting and the papers had twisted it so that it was like I was about to relapse before my wedding and that she'd taken me to this meeting and, you know, saved, sort of saved me. It was like that kind of tone. And then inside, because I'm like you, I, you know, I've never printed pictures of my children ever. They're, I've never even posted a picture of them on Facebook, not even on my private Facebook page ever. There's never been a picture of my kids anywhere. Now my kids are 19 and 21, the older ones they can choose. I will never post a picture of Chester online. There's pictures of our honeymoon. I, like I hadn't, I wasn't posting, I wasn't, wouldn't, I mean, Instagram wasn't around, but there was, she, in the newspapers of us, like at, together with her, ah, I was like somebody token my heart and grabbed it and ripped it out and I felt the shutters coming down I thought I trusted you and I was you know I'd let you back into my life and I'm gonna put the fucking shutters down because you're not gonna get back in again and I called her up and I was like what are you doing she said oh it was the celebratory thing you know that we'd gone to this meeting together I said nobody knew I was in the fellowship I said you go to the fellowship you know it's an anonymous fellowship it's not like you you're new to it you've been clean for a year like what are you doing I was so upset and my sister, who had always felt a bit invisible, was not mentioned in the article once. And my mum hadn't said, I've got another daughter or my daughter lives with, with you know, Davina and Caroline live together or nothing. She said nothing about her. Like she, she was invisible. It hurt her so much. She never spoke to my mum again, ever, from that moment. Um, she was going to go over and see her in South Africa. They had a plane book, uh, ticket booked and everything and then she realized she probably bought the ticket with the money that she got because my mum didn't have any money I was giving her money for medicines and things like that she just was they didn't have much money and then I carried on giving them the money because I thought who do I want to be when I die or when she dies I want to have been the person that I respect so I thought I'm not going to pull the money and not give her, her meds so I kept giving her the money and then every now and again she'd kind of reach back in I'd think, oh, my God, this is different. Then she'd do something else. So she, another story would come out. Or every time I kind of reached out, another story would come out. And in the end, um, I found out she was dying of cancer um, in South Africa. And I lay in bed in England one night and Matthew was asleep and I put my hands out on top of the bed with my palms facing upwards and I closed my eyes and I imagined shoots of light of forgiveness coming out of the palms of my hand, going across the world to South Africa, to Pretoria where she lived and straight into her heart in the hospital. And I just kept saying, I forgive you for everything. I just 
totally fucking forgive you. I don't care anymore. Forgive you. Go and like be, go in peace. And then me, my sister, and my husband and our kids all went away for a wedding in America. And my sister and I got the news when we were together that she'd gone. And I looked at her, and I said, "She's gone." And she was like, "Wow!" And then we both had a little cry. And then Caroline looked at me and she went, I feel relieved. And I said, so do I. Is that terrible? She went, I don't know. And I said, God, it's, it's, please don't let, and I said to her quietly then, please don't let me be a person that dies and anybody ever feels relieved about. Don't let me ever live that life. And Caroline said, me either. And Caroline definitely didn't. We were fucking broken when she died so she <laughs> she achieved that and i hope that when i go i don't ever like leave anybody feeling happy that i've gone Gosh. well i'm not happy but Relieved, yeah. but when she died she freed me up to remember funny times as well as all of when she was alive i could only remember the bad and what i was missing and when she died you know i was able to remember her being hilarious and arresting people drunk as a citizen's arrest or things that were just funny. Did you go to her funeral? No. And again, will I regress it? No. We have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest asks a question for the next guest. And the question left for you, very good handwriting, um, is... What makes you most angry about society? Cancel culture. Have you been on the receiving end of it? Yeah. When? Um, I wrote a tweet about Sarah Everard's death when it was getting really nasty online about men. Yeah. Um, And... I said that um, that abduction and death from abduction is very rare and we don't need to completely panic about that situation. I wasn't talking about any other kind of things that happen to women. I wasn't talking about domestic abuse or any of the other awful things that happen to women. I was just talking about abduction and death from that. It is rare and we just have to not start blaming all men because, and I was thinking about my son, my son was really cut up about it and he didn't know how to behave. He felt like the enemy suddenly and I was trying to explain to him that he wasn't, I said, you know, we've got brothers and husbands and kids that are worried and what they want to help. Let's not demonize all men. My God. Like I got 200,000 likes um, but I didn't see any of those. I just saw the 10,000 comments asking for me to be murdered or burned at the stake or, you know, I'm a woman hater or I'm a hashtag not all men person and, you know, don't understand about domestic violence. They don't know anything about my life. You know, I've, I've, like, I've lived a life and I've experienced a lot of really terrible things and many terrible things have happened to me, but I just didn't feel that this was the moment to attack all men because... In life, I have discovered that we need to come at life together, men and women, segregating everybody into groups, separate groups, separatist groups. 
I don't I think it's anti-society. We need to all work together and alienating people and entire sex is is not a good idea. You know, like we need you need to have our back and mm. we need to have your back. I know lots of men that really changed their behavior after hearing about how frightened women are in the streets and mm. you know like if they're walking towards a woman just go it's okay or cross over the road yeah. to walk on the other mm. side and maybe they didn't do that before that's a good thing like we need to commend that rather than well you know if we weren't frightened of you in the first place you wouldn't have to do that as you guys you know i just think there's got to be a more open conversation anyway cancel, cancel culture so it's only happened to me once i didn't take take it down I went to bed for a weekend and um, I, was ashamed, I was ashamed and frightened to go to sh go shopping in my local supermarket. I didn't want to go out in town because I felt like everybody would read it and hated me. And then I read quite a few articles afterwards where they were saying, no, completely understand where she was coming from. She was right. And I was thinking, oh, oh, right. And so I kept the comment up there because I do stand by it. But I wish that... I think my big mistake and the thing that I should apologize for is that I posted it three days after, four days after oh, she yeah. died. And it was timing. My timing was shit. Um, and it was way too soon. And I did, again, out of something that was really bad, a bad experience for me, I did learn something from it and I won't do that again. But I don't, I think cancelling somebody doesn't let somebody learn something and ruining someone's life, which happens a lot somebody's whole career gets finished you're never letting them learn mm. the lesson they got you got to let them learn the lesson come back and give them the space to say i could have done it differently and i've learned something yeah so it's i think it's a sad thing that and also it means that often in the public domain i won't say something that i think or believe in because i'm really frightened i'm going to get cancelled for it and That's it might be something that. quite mundane or small or topic, but I think we'll best avoid that. I don't know how we change that. Mm. There are some people in our society well, who just don't you, give a fuck. You, you know? change that yeah. by stopping social media. Because for the, for the 10,000 people that are verbalising how much they hate it, 200,000 liked it. Yeah. So they agree, but you only hear... And there'll be a lot of people who couldn't even like it touch it yeah because of the fear of like because of oh, the fear of getting cancelled that so happens just, a lot yeah, none yeah. of us are saying yeah what we think or believe in or questioning something you know it's terrible when you can't question oh why are you doing that like is yeah. that a good idea i mean when we stop this podcast i'm going to talk to you about a couple of things that are happening at the moment which i think are interesting but i can't say anything i can't form an opinion about it because i can't talk about it anywhere I need to yeah. like, <laughs> i need to find somebody i can actually air yeah, yeah, it with yeah, yeah. you know yeah, yeah. It'll get clipped and then it goes yeah. viral. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's terrifying, isn't it? It's crazy because we Such progress comes from that debate, mm. the conversation, the questioning. All of our progress in society has mm. come from that. A conversation, brave conversations with ideas that at their time were maybe denied or um, not believed in. But because of conversation and progress, because of the fearless nature of some people in our society, whether it's Martin Luther King or, you know, the suffragettes, whatever, things changed. And we, we can't do that anymore with the, the nature of the world. So, And how's, how, so how are things going to change? There is, there are some amongst us, the brave ones, who, who, seemingly don't give a fuck, 
and they are taking all the arrows as they go and that, up um, the hill. We've got a like. Yeah, it makes you ask questions about yourself. Yeah. yeah, but there are. You can think of those people. I'm that just are. wondering, like, at what point, at what age am I? Because I've got a feeling I'm going to get to an age where I'm going to go, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like J.K. Rowling just yeah. kind of went for it at one point. Yeah, but I feel like that is another story altogether. I was mm. just about to enter into it. And I thought, nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't want to get cancelled. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll, we'll finish there. I want to thank you so much again. It's a real honour to meet you and have a conversation with you. And um, I hope we do this again sometime because I feel like we've got so much more to talk about. Yeah, God, me too. <laughs> well, we won't be cancelled. Thanks uh, for having me. No, I've really enjoyed you. it. And thanks for letting me in to bit of your life as well. It's been oh, nice. Oh, not at all. It's been a, been a huge honour. And I've really, it's been a rare enriching conversation yeah. because of your energy, but also because of your wisdom. So thank you. Oh. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.